The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. There is a judgment greater than anything you've ever known. It won't be long. Your life will pass by as a vapor and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And every secret deed and thought Every wrinkle, every spot will be in view Before the one who knows all things The Lord of Lord and King of Kings You know the one you never knew While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come He is the shelter from the coming storm All creation shakes at the mention of His name. He has power over life and death. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. Heaven and earth will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father will you bow. To his majesty He can save you from the might of all your sin This is the fight in which he stands In perfect victory While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come Shelter from the coming storm While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from all your sin And believe on the risen Christ can find peace in Him from the judgment that's to come. He is a shelter from the coming storm. He's the only shelter Amen. from the coming storm.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. When I look at the Christian church today, I see that many Christians want to turn aside from certain things, but not from other things. I look at the two-party system that we have, the Democrats and the Republicans. You find the Democrats and the Republicans arguing brutally over certain issues, like how much funding should we be doing for the war? One side says, we need to do more. The other side, no, we need to do less. But they all agree we need to do some. So it is in the Christian church today. There is a large divide among Christians. But even those who call themselves Christians will seldom identify solely with the commands of Jesus. They'll go with certain cultural understandings. They'll say, it would be wrong to go to a strip club. But on the other hand, they can go to a football game and say, what's wrong with a football game? What's wrong with watching the Rams or the or the Cowboys? What, what's wrong with watching the football game and spending hours, even flying places and, and investing time and money and energy? What's wrong with that, Pastor? Come on. I'm not going to a strip club. No, but you are loving the world and the things in the world. And according to Jesus, we're not to love the things in the world. We're to come out and be separate. But we don't want to be too separate. We want to have one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus. So we'll watch movies, open our minds and our hearts, and fill ourselves with the darkness. But we wouldn't watch X-rated movie. We'll watch an R-rated movie, but not an X-rated movie. We need to come clean with Jesus. I made some notes. Let me share them with you. Jesus requires you to repent. But Jesus cannot repent for you. Jesus requires you to believe. But Jesus cannot believe for you. Jesus requires you to submit everything to him, to no longer go with the world or the way of the world. But he cannot submit for you. The Holy Spirit will come, and if you're sensitive to his commands, he will begin to urge you to give up and to flee from the wrath to come. He'll urge you to do a full work of repentance, a complete work of repentance. But he cannot do it for you. This week I've been talking with you all week about entering into Jesus. I'm going to share with you a story today that I've shared many times on this broadcast, but every time I do and every time I read it myself, my spirit is deeply touched. I urge you to not tune it off in arrogance and say, I've heard that. No, this is not about information that you already know. This is about getting to the very bottom of the issue and entering into the presence of Jesus. This man entered into the very presence of God. And as a result, won more than 250,000 people to the, to the Lord Jesus. His name was Charles Finney. I want to read for you what happened for him as he began to be serious about what he was going to do with Jesus. 
he recognized that he had prayed and other people had prayed and there was no answer to that prayer. And he puzzled over, why would God not answer someone? And some of you are frankly puzzled because you've prayed and finally you've given up on prayer because you say, God won't answer me anyway. He'll answer you, pastor, but he won't answer me. Well, I'll tell you why he won't answer your prayer. You've not yet met the conditions for prayer to be answered. There are certain conditions that you must meet before God will respond. You have to pray in faith, expecting God to give an answer. And you must have utterly left your sin and utterly cast yourself upon Jesus. Well, let me share this. This is chapter two of the book, Holy Spirit Revivals by Charles Finney. One Sunday night in the autumn of 1821, I made up my mind that I would settle the question of my soul's salvation. And if it were possible, I would make my peace with God. However, as I was very busy in the affairs of the office, I knew that I would never attend to the subject with any real results unless I was determined. Therefore, I resolved then and there as far as possible to avoid all business and everything that would divert my attention in order to give myself wholly to the work of securing the salvation of my soul. I carried this resolution into execution as sternly and thoroughly as I could. I was obligated to be in the office a good deal, but as the province of God would have it, I did not have much to do either Monday or Tuesday of that particular week, and so I had the opportunity to read my Bible and engage in prayer most of those two days. But I was very proud without knowing it. I had supposed that I did not care much about others' opinions of me, and I had, in fact, been quite obvious in attending prayer meetings and, and paying attention to religion while I was in Adams, New York. In this respect, I'd led the church at times to think that I must be an anxious inquirer. But when I had to face the question, I found that I was very unwilling to have anyone know that I was finally seeking the salvation of my soul. Now, some of you listening today, I'm reading a, an account of Charles Finney as he began to search after the Lord. Some of you who are listening today have assumed that you already have salvation. And yet you still walk with the world. I would urge you not to just rely on something that you've been taught, something that someone has said to you. I urge you to go to Jesus and inquire from him about the condition of your soul. And be brutally honest with yourself and with him. And ask him to be totally honest with you. Ask Holy Spirit to come in power and lead you fully into Jesus Christ. He continues, When I prayed, I would only whisper my prayer. After having plugged the keyhole in the door, lest someone should discover that I was engaged in prayer. Before that time, my Bible lay on the table with the rest of my law books. It had never occurred to me to be ashamed of being found reading it any more than I should be ashamed of being found reading any of my other books. But after I had addressed myself to the question, to the subject of my soul's salvation, I kept my Bible out of sight as much as I could. If I was reading it, if anyone came in, I would throw my law books on top of it to create the impression that I had not 
had the Bible in my hands. Instead of being outspoken and willing to talk with anyone and everybody on the subject as before, I found myself unwilling to converse with anyone. I did not want to see my minister because I did not want to let him know how I felt. I had no confidence that he would understand my case and give me the direction I needed. For the same reasons, I avoided conversation with the elders of the church or with any of the Christian people. I was ashamed to let them know how I felt. But on the other hand, I was afraid they would misdirect me. I felt myself left only to the Bible. During Monday and Tuesday, my convictions increased. But still, it seemed as if my heart grew harder. I could not shed a tear. I could not pray. I had no opportunity to pray above a whisper, and frequently I felt I would find relief in prayer if I could be alone, where I could use my voice and express myself. I was shy and avoided speaking to anybody on this subject of salvation. I made sure not to arouse any suspicion that I was finally seeking the salvation of my soul. Tuesday night, I became very nervous. And in the night, a strange feeling came over me as if I were about to die. I knew that if I did die, I would sink down into hell. But I questioned myself and quieted myself as best I could until morning. At an early hour on Wednesday, I started for the office. But just before I arrived at the office, something seemed to confront me as if an inward voice said to me, What are you waiting for? Did you not promise to give your heart to God? What are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? At that point, the whole question of gospel salvation was opened to me in a marvelous manner. I think I then saw as clearly as I have ever in my life the reality and fullness of the atonement of Jesus. I saw that his work is a finished work, that instead of needing any righteousness of my own to recommend me to God, I had to submit myself to the righteousness of God through Christ. Gospel salvation seemed to be an offer to be accepted, something that was full and complete. And all that was necessary on my part was to agree to give up my sins and accept Christ. Instead of being a thing to be brought about by my own works, salvation was a thing to be found entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who presented himself before me as my God and as my Savior. Without being distinctly aware of it, I'd stopped in the street right where the inward voice had first come upon me. How long I remained in that position, I cannot say. But after I contemplated this distinct revelation for a while, the inner voice seemed to ask, Will you accept it now, today? I replied, Yes, I will accept it today or I will die in the attempt Now north of the village and over a hill lay a stretch of woods in which I walked almost daily when the weather was pleasant. It was now the 10th of October and the time was past for my frequent walks there. Nevertheless, instead of going to the office, I turned and bent my course toward the woods, feeling that I must be alone and away from all human eyes and ears so that I could pour out my prayer to God. But still my pride showed itself. As I went over the hill, it occurred to me that someone might see me and suppose that I was going away to pray. Yet there was probably not a person on earth who would have ever suspected such a thing had he seen me going. And so great was my pride, and so much was I possessed with the fear of man, that I sulked along the fence until I got so far out of sight that no one from the village could possibly see me. I then made my way into the woods nearly a quarter of a mile. 
I went over on the other side of the hill and found a place there among some large trees that had fallen across each other, leaving an opening between. There I saw I could make a kind of closet. I crept into this place and knelt down to pray. As I turned to go up into the woods, I recollect having said, I will give my heart to God, or I will never come down from there. I recall repeating this as I went up, I will give my heart to God before I ever come down again. But when I attempted to pray, I found that my heart would not pray. I had supposed that if I only had to be where I could be alone and speak out loud without being overheard, I would pray freely. But when I tried to pray, I was mute. I had nothing to say to God. Or at least I could say only a few words and those without any heart. In attempting to pray, I would hear a a rustling in the leaves and would stop and look up to see if someone had followed me. I did this several times. Finally, I found myself sinking fast to despair. I said to myself, I cannot pray. My heart is dead to God, and it will not pray. I then reproached myself for having promised to give my heart to God before I left the woods. When I tried, I found I could not give my heart to God. My soul hung back. My heart was in no way going out to God. I began to feel deeply that it was too late, that I was past hope, and that God must have given up on me. I know there are some of you listening to this. I'm reading from Holy Spirit Revivals by Charles Finney, his account of reaching out to God. I know some of you today, you know all the theology. You're doing your, your very best to live that Christian life. You're forcing yourself. You're, you're white knuckling it. You're grappling. You're trying. You're doing your best. But in the end of the day, you say, I can't do it. I'm bound for hell. God must have given up on me. God has not given up on you. God has not given up on you. He continues, I then began to think my promise rash, that I would give my heart to God that day or die in the attempt. It seemed to me as if there was a a binding upon my soul. Yet I was going to break my vow. A great discouragement came over me and I felt almost too weak to get up on my knees. This describes the condition of many that I speak with. And so most are not willing to get truly honest with God. And I've heard many of you say to me, well, you know, whatever will be, will be. I'll I'll watch and see what happens. That's a very dangerous course to pursue because what will happen is you'll find yourself in hell and you'll say, how did I end up here? I wanted to be a Christian, but God wouldn't do it for me. No, you have to meet God's conditions. Heaven does not just automatically open up for you. There are conditions that you must meet. There is an honest repentance that must go on in your heart, in your prayers. God cannot repent for you. Listen. Just at this moment, Finney writes, I again thought I heard someone approaching me. I opened my eyes to see whether whether it was so. But just then it was distinctly shown to me that my pride was the great difficulty 
that stood in the way. An overwhelming sense of my wickedness in being ashamed to have a human being see me on my knees before God took such powerful possession of me that I cried at the top of my voice and exclaimed that I would not leave that place if all the men on earth and all the devils in hell surrounded me. What, I said, such a degraded sinner as I am on my knees confessing my sins to the great and holy God? How can I be ashamed to have any human being, a sinner like myself, find me on my knees endeavoring to make my peace with my offended God? The sin appeared awful, infinite. It broke me down before the Lord. At that point, this passage of scripture dropped into my mind with a flood of light. Then you will pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, verses 12 and 13. Somehow I knew This was a passage of scripture, though I do not think I ever had read it. I knew that it was God's word and God's voice that spoke to me. I instantly seized hold of this with my heart. I had intellectually believed the Bible before, but never had I known that faith was a voluntary trust instead of an intellectual state. I was conscious of trusting at that moment in God's veracity. I cried to him, Lord, I take you at your word. You know that I am searching for you with all of my heart and that I have come to pray to you and have promised to, and you have promised to hear me. This seemed to confirm that I could indeed fulfill my vow that very day. The spirit seemed to emphasize this idea in the words, when you search for me with all of your heart. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 13. I told the Lord that I would take him up on his word, that I knew he could not lie, and that I was therefore more, that I was therefore sure that he heard my prayer and that I would find him. He then began to give me other promises from both the Old and the New Testament, especially some regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. I never can in words make any human being understand how precious and true those promises appeared to me. I took them one after the other as infallible truth, the assertions of God who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. They did not seem to fall into my intellect as much as into my heart. To put within the grasp of the voluntary powers of my mind. I took a hold of them and fastened upon them with the grasp of a drowning man. I continued to pray in this way and to receive and take hold of promises for a long time. I do not know how long. I prayed until my mind became so full that before I was aware of it, I was on my feet, tripping my way up the hill toward the road. I did not really think about whether I'd been converted, but as I went up through the brushes, bushes, and the leaves, I recollect saying with great emphasis, if I am ever converted, I will preach the gospel. I soon reached the road that led to the village, and I began to reflect on what had happened. I found that my mind had become wonderfully quiet and peaceful. I said to myself, what is this? I must have grieved the Holy Spirit entirely away. I've lost all my conviction of sin. I don't have a particle of concern about my soul, and it must be that the Spirit has left me. Indeed, I never was so far from being concerned about my salvation any time in my life. Then I remembered what I had said to God while I was on my knees, that I would take him at his word. And so I recalled many things that I had said, 
and I concluded that it was no wonder the Spirit had left me. I imagined that for such a sinner as I was to take hold of God's word in that way was presumption, if not blasphemy. I concluded that, in my excitement, I had grieved the Holy Spirit and perhaps committed the unpardonable sin. I walked quietly toward the village. So perfectly quiet was my mind that it seemed as if all nature listened. I'd gone into the woods immediately after an early breakfast. When I returned to the village, I found it was lunchtime. Yet I'd been wholly unaware of the time that had passed. It appeared to me that I had gone from the village only a short time. But how was I to account for the quiet of my mind? I tried to recall my convictions, to get back under the load of sin under which I'd been laboring. But all sense of sin, all consciousness of present sin or guilt, had departed from me. I said to myself, What is this? That I cannot arouse any sense of guilt in my soul, as great a sinner as I am. I tried in vain to make myself anxious about my present state. I was so quiet and peaceful that I I tried to feel concerned about it, lest it should be a result of my having grieved the spirit away. But no matter what view I took of it, I could not be anxious at all about my soul, my spiritual state. Now, this is one of the most honest accounts Finney is giving us of the work of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, he did it very quickly. For some of us, it's taken much, much longer. And one of the reasons it's taken much longer for me is that I have judged everything in comparison to something else other than Jesus and the Scripture. It's taken me all my life to finally have that peace he's speaking of fill my soul. Today I don't have any sense of guilt or any sense of burden of sin in my life. Jesus has washed it away. I have repented. I have utterly given him all authority and control over my heart and my mind. This is not an intellectualized process. This is a heart process. This is a, this is a human spirit process, not an intellectual process. It's taking God at his word and submitting to him and doing what he's told us to do. I went to lunch. I found I had no appetite to eat. I then went to the office and found that Squire Wright had gone to lunch. That's his partner, attorney. I took down my brass viola, as I was accustomed to do, and I began to play and sing some pieces of sacred music. But as soon as I began to sing those sacred words, I began to weep. It seemed as if my heart was all liquid. My feelings were in such a state that I could not hear my own voice in singing without causing my tears to overflow. I wondered at this and tried to hold back my tears, but could not. And after trying in vain to suppress my tears, I put away my instrument and I stopped singing. After lunch, Attorney Wright and I were engaged in moving our books and furniture to another office. We were very busy in this and had little conversation all afternoon. My mind, however, remained in that profoundly tranquil state. There was a great sweetness and tenderness in my thoughts and my feelings. Everything appeared to be going right, and nothing seemed to ruffle or disturb me in the least. Just before evening, I decided that as soon as I would left alone in the new office, I would try to pray again, that I was not going to abandon the subject of religion and give it up at any rate. Therefore, although I had no longer any concern about my soul or guilt, I was going to still try to pray. 
By evening, we got the books and the furniture all adjusted. I made a good fire in the fireplace, hoping to spend the evening alone. Just at dark, Squire Wright, seeing that everything was adjusted, bade me good night and went out. I accompanied him to the door, and as I closed the door and turned around, my heart seemed to be liquid within me. All of my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour my whole soul out to God. That rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the room behind the front office so I could pray. Now, there was no fire and no light in that room. Nevertheless, it appeared to me perfectly lit. As I went in and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing, but looked at me in such a manner as to break me right down at his feet. He stood before me. I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child. I made such confessions as I could with my choked utterances. It seemed to me that I bathed his feet with my tears. I continued in this state for a good while, but my mind was too much absorbed with the interview to recall anything that I said, yet I know as soon as my mind became calm enough to break off with the interview, I returned to the front office and found the fire I had made was nearly burned out. But as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without any expectation of it, without ever having thought that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I'd ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through my body and soul. I could feel the impression like waves of electricity going through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. I cannot express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recall distinctly that it seemed to fan me like like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was poured out. Romans 5, 5. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushing of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me until I cried out, I will die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I had no fear of death. How long I continued in this state, with this baptism continuing to roll over me and go through me, I do not know. But I know it was late in the evening when a member of my choir, for I was the leader of the choir, came into the office to see me. He found me in this state of loud weeping, and he said to me, Mr. Finney, what's wrong with you? I could not answer him for a time. He then said, Are you in pain? I gathered myself up as best I could and replied, No, but so happy that I cannot live. He turned and left the office and in a few minutes, returned with one of the elders of the church, whose shop was just across the way from our office. This elder was a very serious man. I'd scarcely ever seen him laugh. In my presence, he'd been very watchful. When he came in, I was still in a state of loud weeping. He asked me how I felt. I began to tell him. Instead of saying everything or anything, he fell into this joyous laughter. It seemed as if it were impossible for him to keep from laughing from the very bottom of his heart. Just at the time... I was giving an account of my feelings to the elder. A young man came into the office. I had my back toward the door and barely noticed when he came in. He listened with astonishment to what I was saying. 
And then he fell partly upon the floor and cried out in the greatest agony of mind, Pray for me. Pray for me. The elder of the church and the other member knelt down and began to pray for him. And when they had prayed, I prayed for him myself. And then they all left me alone. I then wondered, why did the elder laugh so? Did he think that I was deluded or crazy? This brought a kind of darkness over my mind. I began to ask myself whether it was proper for me, such a sinner as I had been, to pray for that young man. A cloud seemed to come over me. I felt I could not rest in anything. After a little while, I retired to bed, not distressed in mind, but still at a loss as to what to make of my present state. Nevertheless, the baptism I had received, my view was so obscure that I went to bed without feeling sure that my peace was made with God. I soon fell asleep, but almost as soon as I fell asleep, I was awake again on account of the great flow of the love of God that was in my heart. I was so filled with love that I could not sleep. I fell asleep again and awoke in the same manner. When I awoke, this temptation toward unbelief returned upon me, and the love that seemed to be in my heart abated. But as soon as I was asleep, it was so warm within me that I would immediately awake. That continued until late at night. I finally obtained some sound sleep. When I awoke in the morning, the sun had risen and was pouring a clear light into my room. Words cannot express the impression the sunlight made upon me. Instantly, the baptism that I had received the night before returned upon me in the same manner. I rose to my knees in the bed and wept aloud with joy remaining for some time too much overwhelmed with the baptism of the Spirit to do anything but pour out my soul to God. It seemed as if this morning's baptism was accompanied by a gentle reproof, and the Spirit seemed to say to me, Will you doubt? Will you doubt? I cried, No, I will not doubt. I cannot doubt. He then cleared the subject up so much that it was in fact impossible for me to doubt that the Spirit of God had taken possession of my whole soul. In this state, I was taught that justification by faith is a present experience. I'd never distinctly viewed this as a fundamental doctrine of the gospel. Instead, I did not know at all what it meant in the proper sense, but I could now see and understand what was meant by the passage, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 I could see that from the moment I believed, while up in the woods, all sense of condemnation had entirely dropped out of my mind, and I could not feel a sense of guilt or condemnation by any effort that I could make. My sins were gone. I want you to hear that again. My sins were gone, and my sense of guilt was gone as if I had never sinned. This was just the revelation that I needed. As far as I could see, I was in a state in which I did not sin. Instead of feeling that I was sinning all the time, my heart was so full of love that it overflowed. My cup ran over with blessing and with love, and I could not feel that I was sinning against God, nor could I recover the least sense of guilt for my past sins. On that same morning, I went to the office and there I was experiencing the renewal of those mighty waves of love and salvation flowing over me. And when Attorney Wright came into the office, I said a few words to him on the subject of his salvation. He looked at me with astonishment, but made no reply. He dropped his head and, after standing a few minutes, left the office. 
I thought no more of it, but afterward I found that the remark I had made had pierced him like a sword, and he did not recover from it until he was converted. Soon after Attorney Wright had left the office, the deacon came into the office and he said to me, Mr. Finney, do you recall that my case is to be tried at 10 o'clock this morning? I suppose you're ready. I had been retained to act as his attorney. I replied to him, Deacon, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause and I cannot please yours, plead yours. He looked at me with astonishment and said, What do you mean? I told him in a few words that I had enlisted in the cause of Christ and that he must go and get somebody else to attend his lawsuit. I could not do it. He dropped his head. He went out without making any reply. A few moments later, in passing the window, I observed that the deacon was standing in the road, seemingly lost in deep meditation. He went away, as I afterward learned, and immediately settled his suit. He then committed himself to prayer and soon was converted. I soon set out from the office to converse with all the people I could find about their souls. I had the impression, which has never left my mind, that God wanted me to preach the gospel and that I must begin immediately. I somehow seemed to know it with a certainty that was past all possibility of doubt, just as I knew that I had received the love of God and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When I was first convicted, the thought had occurred to me that if I was ever converted, I would have to leave my profession, of which I was very fond, and begin preaching the gospel. This at first was an obstacle to me. I thought I had spent too much time and study in my profession to think now of becoming a Christian, if by doing so I would be obligated to preach the gospel. However, I at last came to the conclusion that I must submit to God, that I had never commenced the study of law out of any regard to God, and that I had no right to place any conditions on Him. I had laid aside the thought of becoming a minister until the thought came to me, as I have relayed it, on my way from the place of prayer in the woods. I want to stop a minute. Do you see how he's meeting the conditions of God? Absolute surrender. God cannot surrender for you. You must surrender for yourself. God cannot submit for you. He cannot repent for you. He cannot believe for you. These are things that you must very firmly take a hold of and say, I will get to God even if I die trying. Some of you are very comfortable in your your Laodicea condition. You're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not doing anything for the kingdom of God, and you're not seeking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You think you already are good to go. You have a guilty conscience. I talk with so many people, and I ask them, how is it? between your soul and God's. Oh, pastor, I'm working on things. I'm working on things. I'm I'm making progress, pastor. No, you're not. Don't fool yourself. This is not... I have to say this with shame. I have thought to incrementally improve my relationship with God. I can't. God is not incremental. He wants the whole deal. He wants you. He wants you. What is God calling you to do? Do you need to make your peace with God today? Will you do it? Will you make your peace with God today? No matter what it costs you, No matter what sins you have to confess to God and to others, 
Will you make your peace with God so that your conscience can be scrubbed clean by the Holy Spirit using the blood of Jesus to wash and cleanse you? How do you stand with God today? My brother, my sister, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm asking God to come in mighty power and revival power. I'm waiting on the Lord. He usually doesn't do things the same way twice. He hasn't dealt with me as he dealt with Charles Finney. But there are certain things that are the same. Absolute submission to God. Dealing with pride. Dealing with anger. Dealing with accusations and judgment. My brother, my sister. Will you get to God today? I need to hear from some of you. I know God is moving in some of your hearts to give. And some of you have been doing that. Dirk, Rodney, others of you have been doing that. And I thank you so much. One sister up toward Baltimore, you know who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're pushing almost halfway through the month and we haven't even begun to get where we need to be financially. If this broadcast is helpful to you day by day, would you help cover the cost? I need to hear from you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 23. 46 Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I'll give you that address again. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. Write to National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also give online. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com. And I'm wondering, would you do that immediately this afternoon as an encouragement to me to tell me that you're serious? Go to nationalprayerchapel.com. Give online. I also invite you to come on Sunday. If you're serious... You're ready to risk everything. You're ready to be held accountable. You're ready to seek the power and presence of the Holy Spirit with us. Then come. As Jesus calls you and as he directs you. Well, we're out of time for the broadcast today. Tomorrow will be a day of prayer online. I invite you to call and pray. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you with all my heart. I pray for you every day. I'll talk to you soon. Glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with